you're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. I know many of you may have uh, come in this morning excited about the new year uh, with a lot of goals, a lot of expectations, a lot of things that you're looking forward to uh, in 2022. Uh, But some of you may have actually uh, walked in uh, the opposite, Uh, maybe weary, full of despair, uh, anxious about the future, feeling the weight of 2021 carrying into 2022. If if that's you, uh, I want to start before we even enter our text and and to let you know that you're not alone. Um, If I'm honest about where I am, I feel that I've come into this new year a bit wounded, uh, discouraged, if you will. Skeptical uh, of any good to to happen in the future, but I will say I'm fighting for hope, and that's a good thing. And it's a good thing that we're here together because today we can open up the book of hope, and we can experience hope in a new way as we actually look to good news, the gospel of Mark. And as we open up this, this passage, I pray that the Lord fills us, no matter where we may land, with truth and hope. Before we dive into these first couple of verses, I think it's, it's, well, it's good for us to kind of think back and look to the context, the background of Mark, who the author is, and all of that good stuff before we really get into these first eight verses. What we know of this book is that it's actually an anonymous one. But most theologians would attribute this anonymous book, this anonymous gospel of Jesus uh, to the, the writer John Mark. And if you know anything of the scriptures, you know anything of the book of Acts, as you look at Paul's missionary journey, his first missionary journey with Barnabas, him, Barnabas, and John Mark was along in this journey. John Mark actually ends up leaving early in this journey and doesn't go on to Paul's second missionary journey. And the reason for that was because there was this huge dispute between Paul and Barnabas. But good news, uh, at the end of Paul's life, he calls for Mark and we see reconciliation. But John Mark is most notably known as an associate of Peter, uh, Peter's spiritual son, uh, an interpreter for Peter as well. And it's known that the content in Mark, is, even though it's written by John Mark, is actually from the first eyewitness account of Peter as he's writing this down. And Mark is not to be seen as some biography of Jesus. It's important for us to see as we read through Mark, that it's actually a witness document. And you'll get that feel as you're reading through Mark and you see the fast pace. The writer is obviously getting to something, and there is one character that he's most concerned with, and that is Jesus. Mark is also pinning this as a pastoral response. So this book is not just written for the preservation of oral tradition, like many of the books of the Bible is written for, It's not just written so that we can have this account of the life of Jesus, although that be true because it is a gospel, the first gospel, but it's also written as a pastoral response to Mark's audience who is experiencing severe crisis and persecution. His Roman audience is experiencing suffering. And what we know is that in A.D. 64, 64 A.D., Uh, There was this great fire that swept through Rome and destroyed almost three-quarters of the city. And as a result, a lot of people ended up blaming the emperor at that time, Emperor Nero. They said he was the one that caused this fire, and he caused it for his own amusement. 
The emperor, not wanting to be known for that, is trying to deflect this blame. He decides to try and start this urban renovation campaign where he begins to build all of these beautiful gardens and buildings and really doing all of this to get his name out of the blame. Doesn't work. They still believe that Emperor Nero was the reason and the one to call this fire. And so what happens is he's trying to find someone to blame, and who better than a group of rebels? Who better than people who do not necessarily bow down to the same gods and idols of those in Rome, the Christians? So Emperor Nero, in his uh, attempt to deflect this blame, ends up blaming the Christians. He rounds them up, he arrests them, and then becomes this widespread persecution of the Christians. What we see is that he would also place animal skins on Christians and feed them to wild dogs. Also, what he would do is he would beat and flog and place these Christians on a cross like Christ. And then he would also burn these Christians alive and use them to light his garden at night, allowing the people of the town to see and spectate. John Mark would be pinning this gospel with that in mind. And the Christians who would receive this gospel, obviously in fear for their life, would take hiding in catacombs, which were underground cemeteries. And as they're receiving this word, this new gospel, as they're receiving this this message of Jesus in a catacomb, underground, in a dark area full of dead bodies and bones, they're filled with comfort. Although they may be experiencing persecution and suffering, they can be filled with hope because they have a king who is not alien to the suffering that they're experiencing because they have a Messiah who is coming to deal with all of the broken reality that they're experiencing at that time. Comfort has come. And as he pins this, he starts the, the, the gospel in verse 1 uh, with the title of the book. So right at verse 1, we get the title of the whole book of Mark. And it's actually, the first, the first 13 verses are actually a prologue. It's an introduction uh, to the book of Mark before we really get into the contents So that the reader, those who are reading, can have some foreknowledge, some divine foreknowledge of what is actually taking place. Verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the title of this book. Mark begins with the beginning. The Greek word arche is something that we should look to as it brings us back even to the Genesis account. And as we read even other Gospels, we hear of this beginning. And what Mark is pinning is the beginning of a new era, the Gospel era. The beginning of the time of a Savior to come. I know we're experiencing Advent and we've uh, had Christmas and we think all about the birth of Christ. But the way that Mark starts this book is a little different. He starts this book first pointing out that this Gospel is good news. It's joyful tidings, and this gospel is about Jesus, the Christ. Jewish readers would automatically know exactly who this Christ was. Christ was not Jesus' last name, but Christ is the anointed one who has come to bring liberation and salvation to the people of God. 
they would immediately read this with hopeful expectation because before this, before this, there were 300 years of silence. No prophetic voice, no activity from God's silence. And in this moment, as John the Baptist comes, we have this change, this beginning, this new era that is presented. And it's the good news of Christ, the message of what Christ has come to do. And if that's not more, the Gentile readers that would be reading this would also see the Son of God and know exactly who Mark is talking about. In the early copies, the Son of God is actually omitted, but it's good to note as we read through Mark and as we'll see in the series, it is easy to see that Jesus is this anointed one, this promised Messiah who was talked about long ago, even in the Old Testament. This Jesus is not some new guy to the scene, but, but God's plan A to salvation. He is the very imprint and nature of God. He is Savior, King, and divine. Going on to verse 2, it starts with a prophecy. It says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. I said we're talking about Advent and Christmas. And here we see that the beginning of the gospel does not start uh, in a manger. It does not start with the birth of Jesus, but it starts with the prophetic word. Jesus' status and who he is does not come from his family pedigree, but from God. This prophetic word actually, it connects the Old Testament to the New, and it establishes God's plan from all along. Before John the Baptist came, there was Isaiah. And Isaiah is the one whom this prophecy referenced to. In Isaiah 43, it says, A voice cries out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Here in this text, here Isaiah wrote this verse during the Babylonian exile. The people were in despair. But Isaiah spoke of a new exodus, just as God led the Israelites through the wilderness into the promised land so also God will lead exiles back to Jerusalem. The author here is believing that John the Baptist is like Elijah, who has come before the coming of Christ. We also see that this is not only a reference to Isaiah in verses 2 through 3, but it's also a reference to two other Old Testament texts. One in Malachi, Malachi 3.1, which says, See, I am sending my messenger to prepare the way before me. Here, Malachi intends this as a warning. In Malachi, the priests had become corrupt and self-serving so that their service had become an abomination to God. The messenger of whom Malachi spoke of was to come to cleanse and to purify the worship of the temple before the anointed one of God. John's preparing the way before the anointed one, the Christ, is coming. And Mark reinterprets this verse as Elijah again, who comes to prepare the way. But then we also have this other Old Testament text in Exodus 23. 
Exodus 23, 20, it says, I am going to send an angel in front of you to guard you on the way. And uh, yeah, I am going to send an angel to you in front of you to guard you on the way. And this verse right here, the explanation, the Greek for angel or angelos can be either an angelic or human messenger. In Exodus, God sent an angel to lead the people on their wilderness journey. And in this gospel, that messenger is John the Baptist. So as we look at these three Old Testament texts, it's actually the culmination of the Old Testament. We have the Torah, which is Exodus. We have the major prophets, and we have the minor prophets who all prophesy and speak of this moment as John the Baptist comes to the scene. And what this is saying is that Jesus is actually the fulfillment of those prophecies. Verse 4 through 6, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. As we look at this weird guy in this wilderness, John the Baptist, uh, it's good for us to take note as we're looking at this passage, the wilderness. Why is he in the wilderness? Well, the wilderness has a special meaning to the Jewish people. It's where God speaks to his people. It's where freedom from the wilderness that would God, when God would lead the people of God out of slavery in Egypt, he would lead them into the wilderness. It was in the wilderness that they became a nation. The answer is also that it was in the wilderness uh, when, when God or Elijah the prophet had came and spoke uh, this word of this coming Messiah, of preparing the way. And it is John uh, whom this, uh, the wilderness is going to be connected to. So John comes and he's preaching the baptism or the forgiveness of sins or the repentance of sins. And what he's ultimately doing is he's calling people to take whatever is in the way out of the way so that they can receive Christ. And then he's baptizing them in the Jordan River. Good to note that this Jordan River in the Old Testament was famous to be the boundary between the wilderness and the promised land. The people of God, as they were going through the water, would know that their wandering would soon be over, that hope would finally be realized. And John the Baptist is now enacting this as he's baptizing them in this water, calling them to repent, calling them to confess their sins so that they can be forgiven. People are flocking to John. They're flocking to hear this message, which is kind of weird, because John isn't some uh, famous person that is well-liked, and you, you see his image, you, you hear his message. You would think that this is not something that people would drive to the wilderness to come and hear, but there had been over 300 years of silence. And now this, this person comes and is like Elijah, and there's this hope now. People are coming because they know that their salvation is near. They're preparing the way to receive the Savior. And John the Baptist is doing his part. 
All those in Jerusalem are coming to him. For whatever reason, they give us a description of John's clothing. John was clothed with camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. He ate locusts and wild honey. Ultimately, the reason why this minor description seems minor, it's major because it's connecting John the Baptist to Elijah, whom the Old Testament describes as a hairy man with a leather belt around his waist. And it also describes the prophetic tradition of the prophets of old. The prophet Daniel also declined a royal diet in preference for vegetables and water in Daniel 1 and 8. And the Torah also speaks of locusts as a permissible food uh, in, uh, for prophets. And the Jewish traditions also would share of this same thing regarding what he ate. Verse 7, and he prepared or he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I the straps of whose sandals I am unworthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. After me comes he who is mightier than I. The people of the crowd are coming. His popularity is gaining, but he's redirecting. And to redirecting people back to Jesus, the focus the one who's coming that is greater than him with all power, with all authority and salvation. He also says, the thongs of whose sandals I am unworthy to stoop down and untie. This, this task of untying someone's sandals is considered so menial that all Jews, even Jewish slaves, are exempted from such duty and only Gentile slaves can be required to do so. And ultimately what he's saying is that the one who's coming, his sandals, he is greater than I could ever be. I come and I'm baptizing you with just water. But this one who's coming, this promised Messiah, will actually give you the Holy Spirit. After centuries of prophetless, spiritless history, John promises that Jesus will baptize them with the Holy Spirit. And it is good news. It is joyful tidings to know that God is a promise keeper. It's the hope that we have when we read this passage. That John is, is just a forerunner, but John in this passage is just fulfilling God's plan of salvation to use Jesus to save mankind. For some of you, that might not be good news because you quite don't understand the bad news. What John is calling people to do is to repent of sins so that they can receive Christ and be saved. God has always had this in mind. This is not some new response to a new reality, but it was always God's plan to use Jesus. As we leave this text, it's easy for us when we're reading or we're going through or listening to a sermon to ask, what does this say about us? But as we look to the Gospels, we should ask, what does this say about Jesus? And even though John is preparing the way for the Lord, you may think we may be called to prepare the way for the Lord. 
But ultimately, what this text is, is leading us to is, is God's activity, God's initiation to save mankind. Ultimately, what we should see in this is that God is preparing the way. Jesus has prepared the way so that we can receive him and follow him. Jesus has come. So repent and believe in the gospel and his salvation. It is only through him that we have hope. And no matter what we experience today, we can look to this truth and to know that God is going to do what he says he's going to do. And the hope that we have is not some little hope. Jesus is coming again, church. May we be ready. May we be faithful in doing what we've been called to do. At the beginning of the new year, it is good to be reminded that our heart and our hope as a sojourn church is to make disciples, to multiply neighborhood parishes, and to plant churches awaiting the coming of Christ, telling our neighbors to repent and believe, and believing in that message. Let's pray. Father, this is the hope that we have, that everything spoken about you in the Old Testament is true. And everything that we experience now, we can receive because you have fulfilled your promise. You have brought us and and given us Jesus to, to receive and to believe. Father, it is my prayer that those this morning that are far from you, as they hear this word, that your spirit is softening their hearts to receive this promised Messiah that has come and that desires to give us every good thing that we need in this life. Everything that we need in this life for for life and godliness you have given us through Jesus. It's so easy to become distracted by all of the different things that we think that we need, all of the, the, the application points that we think that we need to hear in this moment for our lives, but we just need Jesus. May we, like the author of this book, glory in Jesus, talk of Jesus, love Jesus, trust Jesus, repent of our sins so that we can receive Jesus. Father, bring us back. Father, stir our affections for you and help us not to leave the same. God, may your word do in our hearts what only your word can do. May this gospel message of a Savior coming to save us do what it can only do in our hearts. And may we trust and believe that. And as we take communion, may we receive that, that you've died for our sins, that you've cleansed us, that you've purified us once and for all. And we don't have to go back like the Old Testament and sacrifice or to do all of these things to be made right from you. Jesus is our high priest. Jesus is our sacrifice. Jesus is our savior. And we long for Jesus to come. May that be true for us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.